Today on Sagittarian Matters, Eileen Miles is back. We talk about meditation, the concept of home, making money as an artist, films, tea bags, co-parenting, girlfriends, ex-girlfriends, tolerating the intolerable, activist groups, self-care, ambition, and creativity. Plus, unsolicited Whole Foods music review, hardcore music revisited, and an introduction to Hermes the Tortoise. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the matter? Hello from the Sagittarian Matters Social Distancing Studios in Tahunga, California. Listeners, I'm all geared up, so let's just start talking. I want to talk to you about music, hardcore, and the tortoise. In that order. I was just at Whole Foods. I don't want to shop there anymore, but that's where I was. I was in the produce section getting produce for the tortoise, who I'll tell you about later. And the music system in Whole Foods was such that it was blasting in the tiny produce section, which is almost like its own alcove. Blasting like the B-sides, C-sides, D-sides of pop music. Granted, I am not, I don't have my finger on the pulse of pop music right now, but it was like the poor man's Taylor Swift, the poor man's Demi Lovato, the poor man's Maroon 5. No offense to poor men. Um, but there was a band playing that was like a descendant of Maroon 5. And at just some point, the man, I think I've blocked out what it actually sounded like, but the man was like, Aah! like he did his, his big vocal and it was so horrific. I looked to my right and there was a man with, you know, I don't know, horn rimmed ish glasses, maybe a couple tattoos. Something about him told me that this man would, he was also of a certain age. So I felt like he would understand if I complained to him. Cause before that, I felt like I was in isolation, just living in hell as I was trying to pick out a cucumber to feed this tortoise. So I just, I couldn't bear it. It was like blood was coming out of my ears listening to this music. And I turned to the man and I said, that was his best take. This song we're listening to, that was this guy's best take. He was like, what? (laughs) And then 10 minutes later, he found me in another aisle and said, I didn't realize what you were saying because I listened to it and it sounded bad. And I said, yeah, imagine how terrible the other takes were that they chose that one to put on the album that got sold to Whole Foods. And anyway, I couldn't bear it. And I mentioned it to the person at the register. I said, I really feel happy for you that they're not pumping that music here. And he said, well, you know, it's pretty hard here at Christmas time because they blast that music. And the girls behind me in line said, yeah, try working at Macy's at Christmas time. It makes you want to die. And then I said, at least you don't work at Grocery Outlet where they play their own theme song over and over and over again. Grocery Outlet. And the girl said, oh, yeah, I do hear that song. They play their own ads. I was like, yeah, while you're shopping at Grocery Outlet, they're playing advertisements for Grocery Outlet where you already are. Pray for the people that work at Grocery Outlet is all I'm saying. Okay, listeners. So then in the car to celebrate being free of Whole Foods and that music, I turned on Minor Threat because I was feeling it today. I was feeling that today. 
And um, I still think they're great. There's one song that we're not going to talk about that is stricken from the record that they've apologized for, but otherwise, great. I And I also felt glad to have grown up as an uptight teenager that was like, I don't smoke or drink or fuck, but at least I can think. I lo- I'm almost there now. I'm like two-thirds of the way there now. Okay, so then I was on a roll with hardcore, and I was remembering how I had a Minor Threat cover band called Minor Treat with my dear friend LKN, rest in peace, and Terika, and at one point Danny, and um, I was wanting to form another Minor Threat cover band, and then I decided to listen to Gorilla Biscuits. If you're not familiar with hardcore, just listen. I was listening to Gorilla Biscuits, a hardcore band I loved, loved in high school. And I was like, I think I still love this band. And then I remembered something I forgot, which is that they have a whole song about how it's not okay to joke around. They have a whole song that's basically like, we don't think all jokes are funny. (laughs) Sometimes a joke might be funny to you, but not to other people, which I think is a a funny extension of straight edge into just like, you're trying to rain on, you know, drugs parade will also rain on jokes parade. (laughs) And then I remember that that band also quotes the Bible. It's a weird slippery slope when you get into moralistic music, especially when you're a teenager, where it's like half the hardcore scene became Hare Krishna's, half of them became Christian. And I'm pretty sure, I was listening to Propagandi next, and I'm pretty sure I'm the only person from my pack of hardcore friends that still yells out the window, meet is still murder, dairy is still rape, as I listen to a Propagandi song. I'm pretty sure everyone else that was in my crew of gentlemen that would drive to hardcore fests, I think they all drink and eat meat now. I'm pretty sure. And now, finally, the information you have been waiting for. There is a new member of the Sagittarian Matters family. I am pleased to introduce you. I hope that you welcome her with open arms and paws. Her name is Hermes. She is a Russian tortoise of undisclosed age. Perhaps she's a year old. Perhaps she's a little less. Hard to say. She came from a mysterious background with a shadowy figure who, quote, couldn't care for her anymore. Didn't have the time to take care of her anymore. Any follow-up questions I had? Unclear. She came from a life living in a tiny aquarium with about a half inch of substrate, which is the stuff they like to dig in. She had no hidey hole. She just spent all day trying to get out of that tank. Now she's living in Tahunga, California in the social distancing studios and on the social distancing deck. Um, She's walking around. She's eating dandelion greens. She's eating mustard greens. She's eating flowers. She's eating a banana. Whoops, they're not supposed to have sugar. I thought it would be cute to feed her a little bit of sweets. Oops, that's just on the internet. Actually, this kind of tortoise isn't supposed to have that very often. Sorry. Um, Anyway... I have this tortoise now. Happy to answer any questions. Happy to welcome her to the family. She has not yet expressed an interest in becoming a producer, but I'll talk to Chris and Ponyo and see, you know, if there's an avenue for that. I want to say one thing, though. I want to post so many cute videos of her on Instagram and online. I want you to get to see all the cute things that she does because I have really benefited at different points in my life from seeing videos of a tortoise crunching on something or a tortoise getting a bath. And so I want to pass that forward. However, caveat, if any of these photos, videos, 
tortoise talk. If any of it inspires you in any way to get a tortoise, even looking at other people's tortoise videos, please adopt, don't shop. Please, please, for the love of Ponyo, adopt, don't shop. There are so many tortoises and turtles that need homes. Just like this one, there's so many tortoises and turtles that people dumped, but that are going to live to be 40 years old or 100 years old that are looking for homes. And I just believe that every time you go to a pet store or a breeder and get yourself a little baby or get yourself a pet store or breeder version, you're displacing, you're taking away a home that could have been the home for a homeless tortoise. I feel the way about dogs and cats, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about torti. So anyway, as a favor to me, if you wouldn't mind taking a moment, if you decide to get a tortoise or a turtle, doing a lot of research, getting one from a reputable rescue, or perhaps somebody who can't take care of theirs anymore. That's my PSA. Thank you very much for listening. I can't wait for you to meet Hermes the tortoise. Hermes, if you are fancy Mr. Monopoly top hat, monocle wearing person. Um, I hope you have a great week and enjoy this episode. Eileen Miles is a Sagittarius, a poet, a novelist, a performer, an art journalist, and a friend to Sagittarian Matters. Their more than 20 books include Cool For You, I Must Be Living Twice, Chelsea Girls, Afterglow, and more. Eileen has received a Guggenheim Fellowship and was recently elected a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. They joined me from their home in Marfa, Texas to talk about their new book of poetry, A Working Life. With intelligence, heart, and singular vision, A Working Life shows Eileen Miles working at a thrilling new pitch of their poetic and philosophical powers. They also have another book out. Please run, don't walk, and get both of these. The other one is a huge, beautiful anthology called Pathetic Literature. Go get both of these books. I swear you will love them both. Now please enjoy my talk with friend to the show, Eileen Miles. P.S. Content warning. About 36 minutes into our conversation, we talk about the existence of sexual assault. For approximately four minutes, we discuss that this is something that exists. I wanted to let you know in case you need to take a break then. Enjoy the program. And then your book that just came out or is about to come out, probably when people are listening to this, it will have just come out, is A Working Life, Uh which is beautiful. Thank you. Because you cut the color. Do you like the cover or you like the title? I like I like the whole thing. I like the color. I like the drawing. I like the lettering. I like the poetry inside of it. Oh, my God. Wow. You're the, the ideal person. The paper feels good. The typeface is great. Yay. I like yay. the smell of it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, the smell is what matters, I think. Yeah. The smell is what matters. I wonder, would you be open to reading us a couple of things from A Working Life? I could totally do that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, probably the little guys, right? Whatever you want. I, I just read, I'll read the first poem in it, which is called To a Friend, but my friend, because my friend had a crush and I was just wanting to give her some advice or something. Um, nothing better for people than dogs. Nothing better than making you scream here. 
There were two super new cars and then some pink chicken fillets. I guess there were berries for sale in Scandinavia. A man in a plaid shirt and cook and cookies. Also, they are working in a cemetery. I can see their blue ladder from here. A man has written a book about many deaths or many things to do after. Read it, read it, they say. But what comes after is a small idea. Now is large, rainy. Amy, I wish you luck. I love that one. And I guess I just love because Rainey and Amy Brime, I think when that when stuff like that happens, I was like, okay, that's a poem. Do you want one slightly longer? Yeah. Okay, this is the best. I think this is the best poem. This is the hit poem of the book. What page are we on? I like to read while you read. It's page 130 and it's called Put My House. Okay. Um, put my house inside the boat. Can we do that? Put my dog inside of your dog. Put these birds inside of yours. Put my ocean, put your ocean all over my mountains. Put my mountains in there. Put my dog in yours. My dog walk is safe inside your dog walk. Let me eat inside you. Let me eat your food. Let me eat your house. Put your house inside my dog. Put your dog on my boat. Naturalize. Put my heart in yours. Put my mouth on your mouth. Put my hair in yours. Let me breathe inside you. Let me smell your guts. Put your boat in my eye. Let me eat your friends. Put these hours inside your hours. Eat this bird cheap. Eat my dog's foot. Eat that ocean. Run to him or the ocean. Run to them. Hear these birds cheap. Fly to me. Eat my foot. Put my house inside yours. In your mind, think me fly. Just fly me home. Love me now. Forget your phone. Eat my heart. Run to him or the oh, oh, shun. Tweet, tweet, tweet. Dog growl. Cluck, click. Put my house right in there. Yeah, that's me looking out the window. Look at me. Bark, bark, bark. Put your heart inside that bark. Yay. Thank you. Yay. I love it. Um, You're in Marfa right now. Yes, yes. How does it feel? It's great. It's finally, it, it was it's been like almost summer. It's been like seventies. It's been really great. And then suddenly it was like polar vortex came and winter was back and everything that I brought from New York that I had never worn, I wore last week and now it's over again and we're back in shorts and uh, yeah, I love it here. It's, it's got like really crazy weather. Like it's cold in the morning. It's cold at night and a little LA is a little bit like Marfa's climate, but Marfa I think is more extreme. So it's sort of like San Francisco and LA kind of together with mountains. Um, yeah, I'm very, I'm very happy here. I feel like it's the best thing I ever did, which was to buy a house in Texas. Um, our friend, Ali Liebegott, poet, author, friend, wanted me to ask you about your ideas of home. Hmm. Hmm. And let me see if yeah. they have any follow-up. They said, cause you're a Sagittarius. And they remembered one time, she remembered one time you said how much you love to fly on a plane and it seemed kind of like you could be home wherever you are, that it's a state and not a place. Right. Right. Well, I feel like in my composition notebook, I am always home. You know what I mean? You know, those little composition notebooks, the ones that are all spotted and then it says composition. Like I've, I've, I mean, I've used different kinds of notebooks, but basically I've used those since I was a kid. And usually I write on, when I start a new one, I write where I am you know, and then, and then I go on and I just, I feel like I do write, write in them very happily on planes 
and, and, you know, different places where I wait. And, and then, then I write, you know, I'll be like in the morning sitting on the couch with my dog drinking tea and I'm writing in it and most I'm writing my dream, what I, you know, trying to figure out what that was. And, and um, so I think writing is a home for sure. And I feel like when I write a good poem, I know I'm home. You know, I feel like I've been in this clatter and everything's a mess and I can't figure out, you know, how, how to be me and what's going on. And then when I start to sort it all out and I make a poem, I think, OK, I think I've, I, I think I've, I'm in a new era. I'm arriving, you know, so that's one thing. But otherwise, I mean, I'm really, you know, like I have a, an apartment in New York that I've had since 1977. I'm really crazy, you know, and I grew up. I don't know. I, I, I do. I, I kind of stick with it, you know, and I'm, this house is new. I mean, I got this house in 2015, so it's been like eight years and increasingly it's, you know, I just got a rug. Increasingly, it's just my place. And I, when I got it, you know, I was between relationships and I thought I'd only had houses in the past with girlfriends and it was always so hard to break up a home. And so I thought I really need a home that's like beyond relationships. You know, and so that's what this place is. And it's very much that kind of moment for me, you know. So home, a home is something very literal and real and full of ritual. Um, for some reason, I'm getting neater in the kitchen. Like, I really like cleaning. I, I never cleaned the kitchen before I went to bed. Now I do. I think it's really a good thing. I think I read that in your book. <laughs> really? <laughs> about doing the dishes, about the doing the dishes before bed so you wake up and it's clean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I was, I mean... I'm writing a book slowly that will come out in a few years and it's called all my loves. And it, and I think it's a lot of it is about things I learned from girlfriends, you know? And so I think that is definitely one of them, you know? And so I think that it's just like, it is like a home for me is, is definitely a comp composite of love, you know, like everybody who ever loved me in some way, I've held on to a piece that I liked. And I live in all those habits. And, and then after a while, I figure, oh, I don't have to do that. She's not here, you know. But a lot of them stick. I feel like my mother didn't exactly teach me how to live. I mean, she taught me something. She, I mean, she was great in some ways. But in many ways, she, she wasn't. And so I've had to figure things out. And so I feel like I've been educated by relationships. I agree. I can think of different ingredients for food or different habits or different things I've tried. Mm -hmm. because of relationships. Totally, totally. Things that I hated that I now do. And I think, wow, yeah, this is not so bad. Like what? Well, I have a really, I mean, I don't like, I'm kind of, kind of don't like wet. I'm kind of a cat. I sort of don't like, you know, I mean, I take, I'm, I, I'm clean, but it's just sort of like, it, it's something to put me in water. You know, it's like with the ocean, I jump in and I jump out. It's not, it's not like, many hours doing laps and having this long relationship with the and so in the kitchen and the sink you know it's sort of like we're kind of little bits of garbage get down into the drain i find that really disgusting i really 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 hate it and i watched one girlfriend who was very neat and clean like put her little paw in there and scoop it out with their fingers and put it in the compost and i was like oh how can you do that <laughs> what and i thought that's really that's really interesting and weird and so i've kind of come around to being able to do that and i still find it like a strange practice but you do you know you don't want all that stuff sitting in your drain no so 
but it is, you know, and nobody, you know, it has to happen. I have one where, you know, I can pick up the whole thing. I have a little drain catcher I bought so that I can pick up the whole drain catcher to dump in the compost. But stuff clings. Yeah, I can't bear to touch it. (laughs) See, I I think it makes me want to barf. It makes me horrified. I don't. It's it's sliminess is really the is really the consistency that I really hate in the world. Slimy things creep me out. Like if you were to tell me there was a drain full of like wet bread and like old oatmeal, like it just like that kind of like that level of slime, like that kind of mushy. And then green tea leaves, slimy green tea leaves. I'm so disgusted by garbage in the sink, like a tea bag in the sink makes me I'm a tea bag, like turns from something that's like a beautiful, fresh beginning to just be like, I'm repulsed. Yeah. 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 This has been in here through an entire cycle of dishes right. being done. It's like in the bottom of it. Yeah. I don't, but you know, I don't know about you. I have some pretty weird tea bag habits, which is to say that like if I'm in bed and I'm drinking tea and it's time to get rid of the tea bag, I love throwing it across the room. What? <laughs> Where does it go? They just land on the floor. And then eventually, you know, I sort of like go around picking up tea bags in my day. They don't stain the floor? Well, they'd stay until I pick them up. I mean, they don't stain? I don't know. I've got a concrete floor. Oh. I sort of don't care. You're living free. What's that's, that? You're living really free. I'm living pretty fucking free. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> true. True, you're true. flinging the tea bag wherever you want while you're reading a book. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, it's okay. Who cares? Yeah. It's great. I'm going to try to be in, I have, you know, a Capricorn moon and rising. Yeah. So I have something like reigning in the freedom. So I right. feel inspired. What do you do with the tea bag? You, I mean, don't you? You don't want to put it on your furniture. The little table next to the bed. The tea bag sits. There. I have a little tea bag holder that I got from Australia. That's in the shape of a teapot and has penguins on it. And I basically, I either will rope the tea bag around the handle until it's suspended above where the water is, Whoa. and then just drink around it, or I'll put it like in a different dish or a different cup. But that means that when you're heading to bed. You have to carry a cup of tea and little the little. Well, I'll I'll like wait and have the whole thing prepared in the kitchen before I walk away. Often. Oh, oh, I see. Well, oh, you mean so the tea bag is no longer an issue? It's not an issue. Yeah, yeah. Because I set it to do its thing while I was doing something else. Anyway. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> we, we could go deeply into these kind of matters because because I mean, we... it really opens into the whole thing of like what you said. You could, you know, you do other things while it's becoming tea. And and I do that too, you know. So it's like there's a whole world of this this process is going, and now I'll go over and do this quickly, but I don't want this to get cold. There's a whole temperature time thing going on. There's whole things about tea that like I haven't entirely explored that are very interesting and they're about time, I think. It's sort of like you know, 14 minutes with green tea and you do, and the water not so hot. So apparently it really comes up with this amazing flavor. And I want uh, that. I've never done it, but I've heard, I've read about it. Yeah. I'm trying to like, I'm trying to learn a little bit more about tea because yeah. I do feel like I will just, you know, just gulp it. I'll just gulp it like as fast as I can. And I know that's not what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. 
before we get into some more advice questions, can I ask you about your meditation practice, either in the past, present or future? Absolutely. How did you get into, you got into meditation. This is something I remember about you. I mean, I got into it in the nineties and I really, I think I very much got into it because I had a crazy week. Like I had a week in which, I don't know, I had a performance and it was really great one night and then it wasn't great the next night. And there was some woman that I was beginning to date and it looked really good the first night and the second night it did not look good. And the audience was, I mean, it was just like there were such completely different experiences in the same location, in the same life. And I felt like I had maybe a a bunch of those things in a week. And, you know, that way that you like, oh, this week. And it was like that. And my friend Myra was already doing Korean meditation on 14th Street. And so I was like, Myra, take me, take me to your, you know. And I went and I I understood that for me that, that part of what meditation was, was something I get to do because the world will always do this, you know, and it's just like, it makes no sense. And there's nothing you can do about it. You know, I mean, you know, there's, you know, some of the things you're, well, some of the things you're responsible for, but you don't often know what those things are. And the thing that's really cool about meditation. And I remember this, I heard this in the beginning that it's like, you don't go to meditation to get smarter or clearer or wiser or more relaxed. You just do it to see what's there, you know? And that's what, and and I find that when I meditate every day, I know a lot more about what's going on in my life than when I don't. Like I notice things and I am very responsible for a lot of stuff that happens around me. And I think me, how did that happen to me? And it's just like, well, because I pushed this lever and I made that remark and I waited extra long. And I, you know what I mean? Like all the things you do that you don't think of as things. It was like, I did all that, you know I mean? I'm not responsible for everything, obviously, but I'm responsible. So it's, it's really an important part of my sanity. You know, and I go in and out like here in Marfa, we have what I have that I love here is, I mean, I have pillows all over the place and I meditate by myself, but I have a group that I sit with on Tuesday tonight. And, um, and I love having people to sit with and I haven't had that for a few years, you know, so that's really exciting and painful too. Painful mentally or on the body? Mentally. Yeah. It's just like, you know. I don't know why it's just, it's, it's awkward. It's intense to sit with people. You know, it's sort of like, there's just all these, you know, I mean, I feel like I'm twitchy when I'm alone. I try not to, you know, look at my phone or watch the cat running in the alley and shit like that. But when I'm with people, I'm like, don't touch your hair, touch your, like, I have to, touch, I have to touch my hair, you know, like <laughs> that. So it's funny. And other people make me nuts too. I was like, why is she moving those beads? You're not supposed to be moving beads, you know? Like, so it's, it's very funny, the whole squalor of being with other people, you know? And then it's so quiet. You can hear everything that's happening in their bodies. Right. Right. And outside, I love it. I mean, I love this. The silence of it is the greatest thing in the world. And I feel like, you know, it's a little piece of, I mean, I'm an ex Catholic and I, you know, there was a little piece of Catholicism that was about silence. And I got that when I was a kid and it reminds me of that. You know, it's like taking the part of Catholic that I like and making that be everything. Mm. It made me meditation made me realize that I was home, 
that I could be home. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, despite everything, because like you, I move around a lot. I have a couple different places where I live. When books come out, I'm on the road, I'm on the road. Right. And I do get a little unmoored. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how can you not? Yeah. And then I remember you used to, you would do, was it through your meditation center in New York where you would go sleep on the streets? We did. That was, that was amazing. Yeah. There was a, there was a guy, I think he's not alive anymore, a guy named Bernie Glassman. And that was his thing that he was about meditation and social justice. And so his thing was to do outings, do field trips, kind of, of street, street retreats, we called them. And you would, you would go out and spend three nights and four days basically living on the street and eating with the homeless and um, just kind of like witnessing. It was the greatest. It was the greatest. And it was an amazing way to be with people. You know, it was really profound. We really, we got so close and it really was like being away, even though I was doing it in my neighborhood. Well, I thought about that as I was getting on my meditation trip and I was just like, Eileen does this. Because I think the social justice focused meditation appeals to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's, a, I think it's a really, it's a, it's an, and it was like, it's a very American thing, you know, to, to, to put those two things together. And also, I guess it's just like, and it, it, you know, and incidentally, we're talking about homelessness now. And I guess, you know, people say unhoused now, people change the word a little bit. But, but it's so interesting that we started out talking about home. And then there's this other reality of homelessness, you know, that's, that's, you know, some people's cup of tea, that's how they're living, you know, that's their life, you know, and then, but it's also a little part of all of us, I think, the way you feel homeless. And so I think it's profound to, to look at people who really, that's really their, their life and to understand something about that. Yeah. That was also part of a fundraiser, right? Well, it was yes and no. It was more like um, to do it, we had to raise money to give to all the places that we would eat because we weren't going to be like a bunch of bourgeois people getting a free, you know, putting the meal bag on or whatever with the homeless we were going to make. So we all had to make, we all had to raise $500 to give to all those organizations. And that was really great. I'm really inspired by that whole project. Oh, me too. Me too. I mean, I'll, I, there's a book one day that I'll, I mean, I've, I wrote a lot about it too, but it hasn't ever, I think one little part of it appeared as a pamphlet, but the rest someday I'll publish. Allie's other question is, How's anyone supposed to make money as an artist if they can't make their living that way? Like, what's the best path to finding the truth to earn money as an artist? Oh, I, I just think you have to be really stubborn and decide that you're going to make money doing it. Yeah. And even though everybody tells you you can't, I think you have to believe that you you will and you must. And, yeah. and that's that's what you're that's what you're that's what you're doing here, I think, you know. I mean, for sure, I feel like I, I know that, I mean, I ha I, we all have loose definitions of what is making art. You know what I mean? Like I do things, I was like, is that art? You know, booking a tour, is that art? You know, we do a lot of work that isn't art exactly. But I feel like I, feel like I want it all to kind of support a poem someplace, you know? Yeah. Me making a poem. I feel like this house, I feel like I'm, this is a house that poetry built. There's no other way that I have this house except for being a poet. 
you know? I think that's, for me, it's helpful to have kind of a mission statement and to have it in my mind. Oh, I so love then, that. That's a so, great idea. So whatever other things I'm doing to make money, if they align with the mission statement, I can just relax. Yeah. No, it's I'm, okay. I'm completely, I think it's very Sagittarian again. I think I totally, that's exactly what, that's exactly what I feel. That's exactly it. Um, and I feel like when I was young, I mean, I, I, I read this Kierkegaard book called The Purity of the Heart. And the, the, the gist of it is the purity of the heart is, is the will to desire one thing. And if you only want one thing, you can have it. And, I, and I, when I was young, I thought, well, I just want to be a poet. I just want to be a poet. And you just have to keep repeating the wish and stuff. And it is, it is it's sort of like, like what you say. It's like, does, does it ultimately have to do with that? You know, and yeah. And I think that's the question. It's sort of like in other contexts, like say drinking, it's sort of like if you're trying not to drink, the question is always like, well, does it, you're trying to make a decision. And they're like, well, does it bring you closer to a drink? you know, then don't do it, you know, like that. And I think there's probably something like that about art too. It's almost like I was just, I was working on a, a piece for the nib, a comics journalism magazine about a moment where some friends had an intervention when I wanted to have a kid. And the friends were like, you don't want a kid. Your art is your kid. Wow. Your dog is your kid. But wow. if I think about my art as my kid, and I think about everything supporting it, supporting my kid, which is my art. Right. It's like, I have to book a tour to support my kid. Right, right. Yeah, my kid <laughs> needs to go out and yeah. have friends and have a life and not be like a little shut-in. My kid's got to take a stroll and see the world. Yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely true. You're, that's true. And your kid needs a new outfit. You have to buy some new clothes so your kid will feel good when you take <laughs> them out. They won't feel humiliated by their parent, you know. Me wearing a barrel and suspenders, taking it out on the road. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I will tell you, I was shocked when those people had that intervention though. I was like, it was people with kids that were like, you don't want a kid. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, at the time, everybody I knew had a toddler and they just wanted a friend to have a toddler with them. So they were like, do it, do it, do it. And then some friends with adult children were like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It'd be okay either way. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I think it's that's great. It's, it's great that people would counsel you against it, like say, don't do it, just don't do it. <laughs> but then they said it out of love because they were like, "You love your life. Look at how free you are." It wasn't what I wanted to hear in the moment. I'll tell you that. When I was dating someone that wanted to have a kid, I had did have people in my life who would like to it. I could. I think you would have a very interesting time having a kid. You know, and I love it. it was a brilliant poet who said that Fanny Howe. She was like, totally do it, do it all for it, all for babies and parenting. You know, I was like, wow. I mean, it made that was like that was very moving because I love Fanny. The book, my this book is dedicated to Fanny Howe. In fact, I think babies would I mean, it's been it's definitely been up for me. I mean, I just it keeps coming up in my work, too. Yeah. Lots of babies, lots of parenting. I mean, I suppose it was a real question, but also. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested, you know, I was sexually assaulted more than once in my life, but in a big way when I was younger and, um, and it affected me tremendously. And so in this new book that I'm writing slowly, um, I think a lot about rape and, and I think about rape in war and rape in culture and, you know, and it produces babies. 
you know, and what about those babies, you know, and it was really, it was really interesting. So I think babies came in through that door for me too, you know, thinking about rape, both to myself and to other people and to, and call, and what, what is the outcome of war? You know, it's just like the way that, I mean, like, what was the movie that kept getting Academy Awards? This, there was a war movie like last week at the Academy Awards. The, oh the, God, I don't know. I can't remember the name of it, but it was like just when you thought um, everything all at once was going to get one more award or that, that um, I love the triangle of sadness. I thought that was a great, great movie. And um, this war movie kept winning, you know, and people love, people love still. Well, you know, they, I guess the Academy is still all white guys. And so they just love a good war movie. But the thing that's always so interesting is the war movies just don't have, they're like an opportunity to make a world in which there's no women. Yeah. But the problem is there were women and they were getting raped. That's yeah. what happens in war. You know, it's like, and rape was not a war crime until 1949. I was like, well, what was it before that? Just like roadkill? I was like, yeah, yeah. So, so it all, it, it does all, everything connects to babies in some way, you know? I was thinking the other day, because I was listening to some meditation thing about how you have to honor your mother and father, no matter what, in some way, because yeah. that's why you exist. You and do? I was thinking about a family member I have who knows that she was the product of rape. Oh. And I was like, how is she supposed to do this meditation? Mm-hmm. Like, I get it right, on a biological level, but that's a big piece of feeling to just sit with or forgive, or I was like, how in the world would this person do this meditation? Right, right. Except I suppose, and this is not to be, you know, pro-life or anything, but I suppose you would wind <laughs> up as, to you would wind up, if you like being in existence, you would wind up being very grateful for the person who had the courage to have you anyway. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's incredible because you're like, your little face is a memory of that face that you didn't like or want and didn't invite, you know? And so it's, it's pretty profound, you know, but I think all, you know, all choices are okay, obviously. Yeah. You know? This is not, we're not pivoting to a pro-life podcast and yet. <laughs> nay, nay. But I mean, I just want, as a final note, I just want to say, you know, all American wars, you know, it's just like what's wrong with all the war movies I grew up with was they don't talk about this at all. And meanwhile, Europe was littered with the babies of American soldiers who had a big old rape party over there, you know, and it's like not part of the history, you know, and that's kind of amazing. That's, you know, America is so frightening in terms of what we don't talk about or see. Woof. Woof, woof, woof. Right, right. (laughs) All right. I have a, I have a pivot. That's an anonymous advice question. Okay. Dear Eileen and Nicole. My relationship with my co-parent is so stressful. Normally, I would have nothing to do with such an ex, but since we made a baby together, I am stuck with negotiating their severe ding-dongery for, like, the rest of my life. Do you have any advice from Confused in California? Yeah, that sounds like everybody's worst nightmare of parenting, you know? And so, like, I mean, that it does seem to be what parenting is in a lot of cases, right? Is it two people who are really incompatible who have made a life and then you've got to somehow agree and on how to take care of that i mean the, i i just think i think the obvious which is to med to to meditate you know to meditate 
to be as kind as you can to that person because it just like fighting with them will not produce anything. And I and I would go to Al-Anon. <laughs> I would go to Al-Anon. I would I would seek twelve step step help because I think you know it's like I don't know. I mean, without yeah, I, I just know that that's a very good approach. You know, to to irreconcilable things and and unendurable situations. You know where you really can't believe how people are behaving. You have to figure out how to be different. Yeah. And it might even sometimes be like one second at a time, one minute at a time, as opposed to one day at a time. Yeah. Just yeah. like catching those little glimmers of feeling generous towards them in your heart, just for like 30 seconds, one day, give yourself a pat on the back. Today's episode is brought to you by Janie Soretti. Kale McHurst, and Joey Soloway. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular, producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $5 million, that's your business, somewhere in between there or more, to hornetleg at gmail.com on PayPal. That's hornet like the insect, leg like its appendage at gmail. Or this Justin. He has got a Venmo. Hell books on Venmo. H-E, double hockey sticks, books. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's speaking voice. Hello, Nicole and Eileen. My question is a classic, old-timey, uh, classic lesbian relationship trope conundrum, which is, how do you deal with your girlfriend's ex-girlfriend? who is still in their life and around all the time. And it's driving you totally bonkers, despite lots of therapy, deep breathing and, you know, regulation and attachment, blah, blah, blah. Any suggestions? Thank you so much from bonkers in Boston. Right. Wow. I know. I know. I mean, I have friends that, that that's a huge, that's a, it's weird. I don't think that I really ever had, is that possibly true? I don't know that that's ever been a big problem. I mean, it's probably because I date, I date too many straight people. So it's like their exes are straight people. They, they don't, they just go away. They just send them away. Yeah. It's over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the, the one thing I think is that you can't legislate against them. You have to, you have to accept them, you know, that's yeah. just a given, you know, and I think maybe, but so it does probably start with, with, some radical acceptance of the fact that this person is not ever going to go away, you know? And it's sort of like, and I do find that when I think when intolerable things are viewed that way, they start to become manageable in some way. You know, I, I just, I always think of this day walking down St. Mark's place in the summertime. Um, this is like in the eighties or the nineties and it was so hot. And I was just, I was, I was away or something and I was just in the city for one day and I had to do 900 errands and it was so horrible in the city and it was so hot and I was so stressed and I was so miserable. And suddenly I just thought it will always be this way. And it was so funny. I started repeating it. It will always be this way. It will always, and it became like air conditioning. I just got so cool, you know, and it just, everything got easier, you know, and so yeah. I think there's some way to, to, to actually, like, I think even it sounds so crazy, love that person, send like little love messages to them, you know? Um, yeah. 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 You can't fight it. You can't fight it. They're there. 
Yeah. You're, if you try to fight it, you're just going to drive a wedge between you and your girlfriend. Yeah. No, I mean, somebody I'm close to has this issue and, and their girlfriend is fighting their ex with such passion that they have to hide. You know, I, I mean, I've had, okay, I, I've had that. It's not this, you know, I've had that where I had a, a relationship where the purple person was just jealous of my friend dates, you know, with anybody. I was spending too much time with other people. She wanted my time. And so I started to hide dates. And it was really crazy. I thought, you know, just like in retrospect, wow, I was just like, that was really sick, you know? So, yeah, can't. So you would just be like, I'm going to the dentist. And then you would go see one of your friends for an innocent walk in the park. Right. I would sneak them. I would say that something I was going to was an hour earlier and I would meet them. And, you know, it's just (laughs) really weird. I was cheating with friends. Yeah. Any kind of, any kind of jealousy that ends up feeling controlling, is just never going to pay off for you or it's not going to get you closer to the thing you want. No, no. And I feel like in retrospect, when I think about my position in those kinds of relationships, I feel like if I had been able to be really calm and just say, this is my friend and I love them. I need to see, I'm a Sagittarian. I need to have a lot of friends. I have a lot of friend dates. It beats, I, I need that. That's, this is who I am. And then see what she does, you know? And it was like, if that was it, that was it. I mean, it just would have saved so much time in my life to be clear and calm about who I am and what I need. Yeah. I mean, all that said, you don't have to hang out with the ex-girlfriend all the time. Like you could say, like, you could like actually try to cultivate some goodwill with the ex-girlfriend, find your commonalities, whatever they are. And then at a certain point, you can be like, I don't want to hang out with her every day. Mm-hmm. You can hang out with her every day. Good for you. Oh, you mean, yeah, the person, the person is stuck having, oh yeah, they don't, yeah, you don't need to hang out with them. You don't need to be best. I mean, you can have a, you know, a mutual respect. Right. We've right. walked the same path. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no, this is your friend. I don't need to hang out with your friends, you know, once in a no. while, holidays or something or, you know, dinner, but yeah, I don't need to, you have your friends. Yeah. Yeah. You guys, you guys go wild. Right. Have, have a great time. <laughs> Dear Sagittarius Matters, how do I navigate weird slash unhealthy dynamics and activism work? We're all working together for the same goals and genuinely want the best. Yet there's drama or people clashing with one another or people getting stressed. How can activist groups be more effective and deal with these dynamics so people don't burn out or combust from combusting in Southern California? Yeah, that's I, I mean, that one that gives me pain because I know that I had that problem like a year or two ago where I feel like I, I had to save this park. I had to save it. I had to do it. And, and um, it was really, it was running my life and I loved it. I had never thrown myself into something like that way. And it was really an amazing experience in the, and, and, and yeah. And I think what, where, where it got really hard was, was the relationships. And there were like, you know, there was a bunch of people and there was, there were factions, you know, and this faction didn't like this faction and people, yeah, it was, I mean, I think, yeah, well, I mean, what is the answer? What is the advice? I mean, I didn't know. I, I think you have to learn how to pace yourself. I think that's the burnout is really huge, I think, in activism. And I and for me, what I didn't know is to take vacations, take frequent vacations from it. You know, you have to step away. 
on a regular basis or you will burn out and all those bites will seem far too important and too, you know. Um, but people also have irreconcilable different um, differences, you know, and I feel like it's like because I didn't know how to resolve those clashes, I, I feel like I, I felt more angsty than I needed to. So I felt like I needed to have vacations and I probably needed to take a hard look at how, um, I mean, probably people probably need group therapy, you know? I mean, I do think this is the kind of thing that a meditation practice or group therapy or 12 step practice could support mm -hmm. in you. Like, you know, it only takes one number being different for the whole equation to change. And I'm not saying you're going to change all these. You're going to be like, I'm going to show up with a great attitude and change your mind. That's not going to happen, but you can control what you're bringing to the scene and how reactive you are. Right, right. Versus you taking a pause to really consider the inflammatory bits that people are bringing to the table and really consider how you want to respond to that and whether it's even worth it. I mean, people have, people have an, people have agendas in activist circles that they're not even, either they are not aware of or they are unwilling to share, you know? And so that's, it's, it's sort of like, it's family stuff. It's intense family stuff, I think, going on. You know? And we've talked about it before on the podcast, but that's what comes up at group therapy. That's the point of group therapy is finding your role in the family system and seeing how you respond when something happens. Yeah, yeah. So like if I'm in a, a group therapy or 12 step scenario and then somebody's not acting right or somebody's not following the rules, oh, I can yeah. observe myself from the outside and see how I'm like, oh, I get so stressed out where I'm like, that person's not following the rules. And I get to see myself from above and see how I like look at my lap and pretend like it's not happening. But then I get enraged and then I'm like, and I get to see how every single person reacts uh -huh. to the same stimulus. And then you get to just work on your reactions around it. I mean, it is one of those things you do just have to keep the focus on yourself. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, I think finally we, we, I think we think that people need to take breaks and they like, like you say, I think they need to use meditation practices and ways to chill. And, but I do think they need group, they need group early on the group needs. Counseling. Oh, group therapy for that group. Yeah. For that activism group. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we could have used that, you know, because people would have been forced to say things that, that they were hiding, I think, you know? Yeah. I think that's a great idea. Dear Sagittarius Matters, how can I stop seeking validation from others and fill my own cup? Oh, my God. Wow. God. Unfilled in Utah. Yeah. I think sincere and beautiful dates with oneself, you know? I think that, like, to if you're if you're an artist making sure that you give yourself like really good art making time and it doesn't have to be hours and hours it could be two hours every day but you need to give that to yourself you know and, and on a regular basis so you're not like giving all the time you know because i think it's like it's very easy to to become something that is asked to do things a lot and and because it makes you be something to do things for people it, it, mm. it's great. You get pumped up and then you get emptied out, you know? So I think it's really important to have a really sweet relationship with your own work life needs, you know? And, um, yeah, I think 
everything is corny that I can think of. Just buying yourself little gifts, like, like something that you can't afford that not, not insane, like a, you know, a Jaguar, but you know, something that, something that would make you feel really um, cool. Like you can't have that, you know, it's like, why not? You know, I think yeah. also going, going on a trip by yourself is really great. Thinking of a place in the world near or far that you want to spend some, some quiet or productive or, you know, cultural time that very, what is the next really magical place on the planet that you want to go to, you know, and work, work quietly towards doing that. I think that's really important. I think that's perfect advice. Good. Here's my question for you because you've been a teacher and because you're a lifelong artist. Can you talk about, can you talk about your life as a lifelong poet? Because I keep having students in my grad programs, et cetera, who get a little high on the success idea or like a little high, like, you know, a little high on the idea of like being published or like having these big things happen where I just want to get them in the practice. Like I want those things to happen too, of course, but I really want to be like, we're doing this so that you can do the practice and be in the long line of cartoonists Mm -hmm. before you and get this out of your body and onto the page. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we know that the love of the practice is what drives the practice, not the success. Yeah. You know, it's like we're back to back to home. I mean, the thing that feels like home is is me, you know, drawing or writing or, you know, like having my favorite kind of paper and using it and the pen that I love and and you know, and just really giving that. You know, I I you know, and I it it it, it runs away with it, I mean, I feel like with all of us, I think it runs away with me. And, you know, suddenly you're looking at social media and you're looking at other people's careers and you feel crappy. And then you realize that everything you've been doing has been about towards success rather than towards the sweet nurturing of the art practice itself, you know? So I think it's so like, that's home. And like, if there's no home. There's no, you know, it's just like, you're going to run out of gas fast you know, and, and you're going to feel like a fraud, you know, or you're going to start doing work that people want you to do that has nothing to do with you. It's sort of like, you don't, I think you lose who you are if you don't have kind of a a nice quiet relationship to your own practice. Because the thing about, I mean, success, as we know, one can feel really amazing. Like I can't believe that I'm getting all this attention and that I am this amazing artist and like, and I'm getting, money and this money will always be you know i'm on a new level of success you know and and then it stops and you're like whoa whoa whoa, wait a second what happened where's all the you know where's all the cameras and the interviews and the the big checks you know and then you know and then a and then a time passes and then some stuff happens i mean it's very it's very uneven um attend you know it's sort of like we all know those people that like make you feel crazy because when they look at you and pay attention to you, you feel so great. And they have like a very flickering kind of attention span. And when they don't look at you, you just feel like, I guess I'm not so special, you know? And I think success is like that. It's like, it's like the kind of, you know, it's like the, uh, the bad, the bad lover or the, or the fickle friend, you know, it just, it isn't, it isn't the real deal. It just isn't. You know, and we don't know people have had huge careers and we don't even know who they are now. You know, it just it just doesn't matter what the, the reward system is doing, you know. 
Yeah. And it also, it just doesn't, it doesn't mean your work doesn't deserve to exist. If you don't get those benchmarks, if those yeah. things feel so far away, if you're like, okay, okay. I mean, I just, I think about poets. I think about cartoonists, not historically the most financially rewarded artists right. that exist. Yeah. And I'm so glad that all their work exists. Oh yeah. I mean, it's crazy. And it's just like, and it's why, I mean, it's almost like we're all poets are almost a joke. It's like, you know, the New York times not too long ago had some article about, you know, why poetry is dead again. And, and poetry has been dead since T.S. Eliot or something. And it was like, it was some crazy person from a Catholic magazine. And I was like, why is the New York Times giving this crazy? And I think because they just love to make us, they know there's a lot of us and they love to make us crazy, you know? And it's just so funny that, that, that what they know about us doesn't produce power. It produces this kind of like, you know, poets getting slapped around and, and feeling, feeling inadequate and stuff. Like, it's just like, somehow we're like this joke, you know, but I think it is because it just, it's sort of like, there's so many of us and like, how could that be good? And, and it, it's great. You know, this, there's so many cartoonists, there's so many artists. It's sort of like the fact that it's not uncommon is, is beautiful and powerful and rich, you know? Yeah. It gets flipped somehow. Do you have a personal line of when you let people see your work and when you don't? Yeah, and I guess it's different. It's different for, I mean, poems are easy because they're, they're frequently short. And so you can, you know, like when I, you know, it's like I, I wouldn't show something. I, I guess I tend to only show poems I feel pretty sure of. Mm -hmm. Like... And it's harder with prose because it's a lot. And um, it's like this part could be good, but then that part's not good. And, you know, and it's, I think it's harder the longer you are an artist too, because it's sort of like, when I think about that, the class that the class we teach and, you know, and it's sort of like, and there's the new artists and, um, and it's really important what each one does, but it's re really important what the group does and how they see each other and all that, you know? And, and so there's a lot of that, kind of support when you're new. And I think it's really different when you when you've been doing it for a while to find to figure out who you trust, you know, that that can be honest about, you know, what they think of the work, you know. Yeah. So I think I mean it's like it's friends, it's finding finding friends and they and it changes. Sometimes it's sort of like they're not old friends, they're new friends, you know. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Sagittarian Matters. I have another question from Allie Liebegott, if you're ready for it. Yeah. Sure. I have a smaller one and a bigger one. Okay. The smaller one is what are your favorite films and why? Like what films do you watch with a poet's heart? Oh, that's so amazing. Um, well, you know, I just saw a film and it was very exciting because I realized that it reminded me of another film that I had really, really, really loved. And then it turned out, of course, that it was the same filmmaker. 
And there's an Inuit filmmaker, and his name is Zacharias Kunuk. There's only one Inuit filmmaker, one big one, K-U-N-U-K. And I, you know, it was it was um, screening here in Marfa, and it was about just very diaristic. It started inside inside this man and woman's home, and them doing their rituals. And then he went out into the ice and snow with the dog sleds and all this. And then then there was a a guy from the government that was trying to convince him to come and live in the settlement and stop living out on the ice and snow. And then and then it ended with him being very old and singing a song about um, living and clearly living in the settlement. He they won, you know, and about um i can't touch the sea ice i i i want to let go but i need to touch the sea ice and i can't go there and it was singing this song it was incredible but the thing that's amazing is that like just before i moved to san diego there was a film i think it was called fast running something like that and it was a three-hour film and it was like about it was like epic um inuit living it was like a story that was like a you know uh you know it was like an old story about something that happened to this man who was a inuit guy and 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 part of the thing that i love so much is that that the culture the story the guy was singing all the time he was singing the story and he was in his boat and he was rowing and something happened and it was around love and betrayal and it was, it was a journey and i think he was thrown out of his tribe and it was very moving but it was just like it was so slow and it was so beautiful and it seemed to it seemed to live in poetry you know and i've, I've read you know like i was obsessed with iceland a few years ago and part of what i loved was that there were these people who were singers in every, you know, they were like traveling before there was radio or television or media at all. There were these people and they would travel around. They would come to your house and everybody in the neighborhood would come and they would sit there in the, in the fading light and they would just sing this song, you know, and they were people, they were regular people who would be fishermen and, you know, and farmers and all that. But a portion of their year, they would just, they would go on tour. And but the tool would go to everybody's houses. And so there I mean, I think it's the oldest thing there is, is these people, you know, and what's so amazing about this, this Inuit filmmaker who's won a lot of awards. He's really great is that he's he's showing that life both now and then. And I mean, for me, I just you know, I, I, I saw. I saw the film and then I used it for like a workshop I did here in Marfa with some, I, I taught here for the first time, which was a complete trip. And I, you know, and, and, and Daisy, the woman who's the director of the, one of the galleries here, let me use their films. And so we, we used a film for like a exercise. And then like last week they screened their films at the local library. And so I got to, you know, go from the computer to the big screen. And when the guy sang in the song about, and I can't touch the sea ice, and I can't touch the sea ice, I just sat there weeping. It was so amazing. And, and you know, film is so amazing to see, to see big. It's so different. It's so different. You want to be in it, you know? You really need to be in it. And that's what I love about film compared to TV, you know? Yeah. So that's a, that's a real, for me, that's a real, I mean, I love, there's certain films, like I love um, Satyricon is one of my favorite films. 
ever, and I've watched it a million times. And I love AI. AI is one of my favorite films, too. You know, and I think, yeah, that's it. I mean, there's a lot of there's filmmakers that I love, and I just keep slowly seeing everything they do. There's a, a film I watch. Oh, a hawk just went overhead and all the little birds eating at my feet are scattered. I saw the giant, oh God. The, the giant body of a hawk. There's a movie I watch if I really need to cry called Grave of the Fireflies. That's kind of a 1980s Studio Ghibli movie about some kids in Japan that are orphaned after their parents are firebombed by Americans, oh, their God. village. And it's the saddest movie that I feel has ever been made. But wow. um, wow. anyway, 